0: We're continuing a short teaching series called A Thrill of Hope, and last weekend we talked about what it meant to have hope during this Christmas season, how we could do all the marriage counseling in the world, but if we don't have hope that our marriages could get better, they'll probably never get better. We could work hard at our employment, but if we don't have hope that we could become a, a better employee, we'll probably never be more productive hope dictates our approach to a lot of things in life. And so we, we talked about last week that we were going to reclaim the hope that we have in Christ, but here's the problem. A lot of times in our lives, we have expectations that aren't met, which causes us to lose a little bit of hope. Let me give you an example. Anybody, any planners out there? Do we have anybody that you just, you love to plan ahead? Okay. That's good. You probably are well-organized. How many of you started planning Christmas presents in July? That's when you started. Any of you? Come on, honestly. Okay, a couple of you. Last service, there was a bunch. That's why they're at 9 a.m. Yeah. (laughs) Allison, was it actually April? Is that when it started? Yeah. So if you are a planner, you know what expectations are like. I find a lot of times in my life, I don't know about yours, with my relationship with God... When my plans don't work out the way that I wanted God to work them out, that's usually when I get frustrated. That's usually when I begin to lose the hope that we're talking about reclaiming because life happens, doesn't it? See, I was uh, thinking about this. For those of you who are planners, think about the first Christmas story for just a second because some of you came in here today and we're going to have some fun, but the truth is you're in a heavy season. You didn't plan on doing any job hunting in December. You didn't plan for that addictive habit to rear its ugly head again. You didn't plan to have the medical issue that you're facing. You didn't plan this Christmas to have an empty seat next to you around the tree. That's reality. That's life sometimes, isn't it? I had a good friend that lost his dad just this week completely out of the blue. So if we're being real, there's a reason sometimes we lack hope. We can sing about the thrill of hope and talk about it, but the truth is hope is hard sometimes because there's a lot going on in this world that is evil and bad and hurtful. And a lot of times we can lump those lack of expectations met onto our relationship with God. Think about the first Christmas though, will you? There's a lot that's not in the story that I'm going to fill in the gaps a little bit. We know that Mary and Joseph were meant to get married, and we know that she was probably a young teenager, maybe 12 or 13 years old. She had started going to the youth group, doing things the right way, (laughs) met this awesome youth leader named Joey, and he just had it going on. Loved the Lord, wanted to honor God. We don't know for sure, but maybe 18, 19 years old. They started dating at the local indie Coffee Roasters in Nazareth there, and they just, you know, they hit it off. And then they decided, let's do this the right way. We're going to honor the Lord, get married, and we're going to wait to be intimate until we are actually married the way that God would like it. And then after they've honored the Lord and done everything the right way, he rewards them by the Holy Spirit impregnating his girlfriend. Talk about a change of plans. A lot of the expectations for their young life together were thrown out the window immediately. Study with me now. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 together, and we're going to kind of hop around. So there's a Bible in your book rack. You can open that up. Power on your Bibles. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18. As you're turning there, I love the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're new to the, the Bible, there are four Gospels, which gospel just means good news, that talks about the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Before the early church gets started in the book of Acts, before all of Paul's letters, we have these four Gospels the Gospel of Matthew is unique. It's writing p- particularly to a Jewish context. I'll give you an example. All the other Gospels, they'll refer to the kingdom of God. And Matthew will refer to it as the kingdom of heaven. Because he was writing to a Jewish Hebrew context that understood it that way. And in Matthew chapter 1, we get a lot of details that you don't get in the other Gospels, particularly the first 17 verses. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But let's look at verse 18. Are you ready to study God's word together, church? <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Here we go. This is uh, how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Now, the word Messiah is just a Hebrew word for anointed one. It was the anointed one that God had promised. The Jewish people thought it would give them their kingdom back, their land back, all of the things that he had given them in the Old Testament and promised them would be returned to them. But this Messiah was an eternal one, and he came to do Far more than just a particular land for a particular people group at a particular time. By the way, uh, the, the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. Do you guys know the Greek word? Yeah, see, this is the smart service. Last service, still sleeping. For those online, it was Christ. The Greek word for anointed one is Christ. So Messiah and Christ, they mean the same thing, just in different languages. And so in this case, it says, this is about the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. This was kind of a big deal to the Hebrew Jewish people. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But, it's kind of the key word. Some of us this Christmas season, we have a a but happening in our life. And we didn't anticipate. Our plans changed. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, we know he doesn't. He turns it around, understands the faithfulness of God, reclaims that. But in that moment, life had changed, and there was a lot of question marks. And here's kind of the big idea I want you guys to take away this morning, to have hope. If you really want to have the thrill of hope this Christmas season, you don't have to understand the plan. You don't have to understand the plan when you trust God's purpose. That should be purpose. When you trust God's purpose. You don't have to understand the plan when you trust God's purpose in your life. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for all these people that came in this room and just uh, packed out the 1015 service this morning to study your word, to worship you. We acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit in the room with us right now. God, some of us have been Christian a long time, and we just need to reclaim our hope and faith in you this morning. Speak to us Some people in the room are new to Christianity. God, may you encourage us, challenge us to become more like the people you designed us to be. And God, for a number of people in the room or maybe even attending online, they may not even consider themselves a Christian yet. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to each of us right where we're at. We know that you love each of us. You have a purpose and plan for our life. May you speak to our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. Amen. You know, I, I, I think about how Mary and Joseph's plans change pretty dramatically. Would you agree? And we're going to kind of break that down here in just a moment. But the truth is, like, I, it made me think about my own life, right? Like, we can only look this through this in our lens in our own life. I don't know what your life looks like currently. A lot of times we think the grass is always greener in someone else's life. You know, for instance, you know, some, you might look at my life and go, oh, yes, you've got married with kids. You must be happy and everything. Great. That's because you don't have to raise my children, right? <laughs> like, let me give you just a taste of what it's like in the Hoosman household. The hope, the thrill of hope at Christmas season looks like. It looks like this Hey, kids, I woke up, wake up in the morning, the day goes on. I can't wait to get home and see them. I come home, we have dinner. Kids, I just love you. You are the greatest thing in my life. I love everything about you. I can't wait to, for you to grow up in amazing young adults and become the people God created you to be. I love you with my, all my heart, soul, life, being. I'll sacrifice anything. You want me laying in front of the train track? I'll do it. Would you take your dish over to the sink for dad tonight? You're the worst. No, I will not take that over there. Why would you do that? You're a mean father, right? I was like, oh, sorry to offend you, 11-year-old. I thought, I thought that was a simple ask. I, I, I didn't mean to upset you. I just care about and love you. Do you think that maybe because I care about you and I want you to get some sleep tonight, some rest, you'd be well rested so you don't get in trouble at school and other things. Would you get ready and just go brush your teeth and prepare for bed? I will never listen to you again, Father. I don't want to be a part of this. You have missed my expectations. I thought I was going to stay up till one in the morning playing video games on your phone. Right? Like... I see it in my kids life and and when their expectations aren't met I don't know why like sometimes their expectations are ridiculous and I just like I don't understand like I love you I'm trying to provide for you why you give me a hard time and that's the Christian side of me (laughs) right parents in that moment sometimes that the old self that Paul talks about in Romans is about to rear its ugly head Jesus comes over, and I'm just like, man, guys, don't you know how much I love you? But these simple things, and I don't want to make light of anything that we're going through, okay? I know that that's, you know, I'm talking about a 10 or 11 year old or even a four year old today. Uh, some of us are going through hard stuff. We got a lot to be upset about, sad over, pain, suffering. That, that's the reality of this world, right? I'm not telling us not to be honest with God. I'm not telling us not to suffer. I'm not telling you you can't be like, God, what's wrong with you? You're a mean God. I'm telling you that if we're honestly studying Scripture together, there is an enemy in our lives that wants to steal, kill, and destroy, and it's not God. And I want to talk about that together. Because if you look at, at Mary and Joseph, their life was flipped upside down overnight. And we're going to look at some other people in uh, the New Testament, in the Christmas story, that their lives we're turned on ahead very quickly, and, and we can lose sight of God's love and his plans for our life. Hey, let me give you a quick example. So it, about three years ago, I, I went to the board of our church, and I said, guys, you know, it's been really cool how a lot of people have been reached for Christ. Let's, let's see more of that happen. we got hundreds of people who live in the Fishers' Geist area. Let's go start a campus over there so we can see God reach more people for Christ. This will be awesome. And we prayed about it, and then, like, about a year and a half ago, God said, instead of doing what you plan to do, I want you to start four churches in four different directions, and it won't be campuses. You'll actually spin them off as separate churches. And then my life overnight just got chaotic. I don't know if you've experienced that. I was just like, God, why? I had a simple plan. It was it a was good plan. And yet today, there are going to be 100 people down on Mass Avenue worshiping together. A number of them every week who aren't Christian, who are just checking church out for the first time. We're, we're going to have people packing out right now, right as we're worshiping together. We most likely have a packed out space to the first service ever at the new Northwest location. Yeah. And here's the best part. This is how the Holy Spirit works. They didn't have to pipe me and Eric in in order for God to speak to people. It's really cool. He can use other people. And, and then the, the thing is, like, today, all of that is going on, and I'm not critiquing other churches. I'm just saying, like, it's cool how God works. And, and, and that today, right now, we're going to reach hundreds of more people for Christ because God has a bigger plan and a better plan than we do. It made my life harder, ruined my job security. That's how God works sometimes. Look at Mary and Joseph. Think, think of it. Let's go to the easy one first, right? Joseph. Mary's the one that really had her life flipped upside down. But uh, Joseph, on the other hand, he, he had already probably made the deposit on the synagogue. <laughs> Invitation sent out. I know I'm reading between the lines. Then this happens. And he chooses not to divorce. And he chooses to stay with her, knowing what that's going to mean for his reputation in the community knowing the hardship that he's faced with, knowing what's going to happen raising that child. And then Mary, this young teenage girl, did everything right. And yet she's faced with the whispers that are happening around the town. Do you know whose names never get recorded in the New Testament? The people that were whispering around the town about Mary. And the hardest thing that Mary ever had to endure in her life ended that she would never want to do, that she didn't deserve, that would have been a horrible experience, ended up being the one thing where her faithfulness to her relationship with her Heavenly Father shined through and everyone throughout the rest of human history will know about her. Because God's plans made a bigger impact than her own. And that's the hard part, isn't it? So if you're lacking hope this Christmas season and you know that expectations aren't being met in life, I want to share with you through scripture how to have hope when God changes your plans. As I know, there's some plans changing in this room over the last few months. And as we head into 2020, God's going to change some more plans. He does it to me every year. And the first point is this. Remember, God has a plan for your life, period. And we could quote, quote Jeremiah 29 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plans to prosper you, not to harm you plans to give you hope in the future. Of course, I was talking about the Israelites, but I believe that promise is true for you today. But if we take it a step further, I want to show you through the gospel of Matthew in the first 17 verses, that if you're like, God doesn't really care. He's just kind of, we're all kind of floating around. He doesn't really have a plan. There's no structure to this. The Bible in the Old Testament, when it compares us to God, we're the ant. We're the ant. We don't understand his ways. His ways are higher than our ways. He is sovereign. We are not. He's almighty. We're not. He's eternal. We're only eternal because of him. See, I share this with you because in the first 17 verses of Matthew, it's the only place we get the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, who loves to read genealogies in the Bible? Isn't that fun? Let me give you a little taste Of the genealogy of Jesus, you can be like, why in the world are we reading a bunch of old Jewish guys' names? Let's read this together. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, uh, the father of Judah and his brothers, where we get the 12 tribes of Israel from. Judah, the father of Perez and uh, Zerah whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nishan, Nishan was the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse. Isn't this enlightening? (laughs) But look, Jesse, the father of King David. By the way, we're going to see here, there were 14 generations there. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Woo. That, a little interesting point. The Israelites uh, lost their land in 586 BC when the Babylonians from the east invaded Judah and took over Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. By the way, how many generations do you think there were from David until the exile? 14 generations. Finally, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetel. Shetel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihu. Abihu, the father of Ealakim. Ealakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim the father of Elihud. By the way, this is the lineage. People would know these names. They wouldn't be a bunch of names that we're just trying to figure out how to pronounce. These would have been people. They would have been familiar with Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mithon. Mithon, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah, or the Anointed One. For thousands of years, they have waited for the Messiah for a particular moment in time. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Does it seem like God had a little bit of a plan for exactly when this would occur. And I love how the details in Scripture, God just shows us in those first 17 verses of, the, of Matthew that the birth of Jesus came at a particular moment in time that God had planned for thousands of years. And oh, by the way, he waited till the moment in time where the Roman Empire had developed intellectually enough that they knew how to develop a good road system so that the good news of the birth of Jesus wouldn't just be for a regional people group, but could be spread all over the Roman Empire and much of the known world. That God and his purpose and his plan did not want just a few to know about it. He had a structure so you wouldn't doubt his plan, that you somehow knew better than him, but he waited a particular moment in time out of his mercy so that more people could know the good news of Jesus and the Messiah. Sometimes I find myself doubting God's plan, and I say things like, well, you were supposed to, right? Like, God was supposed to give me the job that I wanted. God was supposed to have provided a wife or a husband for me by now. God was supposed to provide for me in the financial way that I have wanted him to. And we start doubting the plan that God has for our life. And I'm not telling you, again, to make light of stuff, because the truth is, It's hard sometimes that when God's sovereign plan doesn't meet our expectations, hope is often lost. When God's sovereign plan doesn't meet our expectations, hope is often lost. Proverbs 13.12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick. When our hope and expectations aren't met, it makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. It produces life to us. It's life-giving. So I get it. But do we think that Mary's hope and plan for her life was fulfilled the way that she had envisioned it? Or did she have to adapt her plan to what God's plan for her life was? And see, what does hope look like now for me in the circumstances God has placed me in? That's the hard part of following him, isn't it? That we have to trust his plan for our life. Number one, if you're taking notes, remember God has a plan for your life. But number two, in just a moment, remember God is good. Remember God is good. Sometimes it's hard to remember God is good, though. A little side note, like, I didn't catch this in Scripture before, and I've taught on this so many times. In Matthew 1, verse 25, it wasn't just that Mary and Joseph had to, like, you know, still get married to each other. It wasn't even just that they had to travel all the way to Bethlehem on a donkey at nine months pregnant and give birth in a barn. That was hard enough. But then, as a young married couple, imagine this, you get married in your teens, of verse 25 of Matthew 1 But he, Joseph, did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So, for the married couple, it meant that as teenage kids, they got married and they had to live together, and they could not even be with each other for a year. Talk about hope deferred. So, I just want to encourage you, if we're going to be real this morning, there is a reason that we get in arguments in our marriages. There is a reason we get in our arguments with our kids and grandkids and in our dating life and in, in our friendship with our coworkers. And sometimes we get frustrated and upset, and it's okay to mention that, and God can handle that. But don't doubt that he is good. Don't doubt that he is good. Remember he is good. Psalm 34a, Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Some of this this Christmas season as we have lost hope that our lives could look better. We need to rest in him. But Mary and Joseph had to remember God was good even though his plans didn't bring good things initially to their life. And this might be the hardest part of following him. We all know this, right? Like, that if we get good gifts or hard gifts, it doesn't necessarily represent that God is good or bad in our life. Let me give you an example. Uh, one of my favorite things growing up at Christmas time was uh, going to church. It's not true, was getting presents at Christmas. And you remember when you were a kid and you could not wait to open up those on Christmas Day? And I'll always remember uh, in 1989 the first ever upper deck baseball card set came out with the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, and it was like the greatest baseball card set ever created. Amen? One person again. That's great. It was like the highlight of my childhood. I could not wait. All I wanted was that, and I opened up Christmas Day, and Ryan and I apparently were the only two that got it. And I still to this day have the 89 upper deck baseball card set. I opened it because I wanted to see to make sure the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card was in there, which I wish I hadn't done because then the price of the set went down. But I got the gift. Too much detail, sorry. So I also remember Christmas seasons where I waited and I wanted that Nintendo game or the BB gun or I wanted whatever. I just, I had to have it. And I opened up those gifts and I didn't get what I was expecting. And that's when I knew I had bad parents. <laughs> right? Now, as adults, we know that when a parent does, we don't get the Christmas gift we want. It wasn't because necessarily that they were bad parents. Sometimes they don't give us the Christmas gifts that we wanted because they were good parents. Sometimes they just had a different thing for our life than we wanted. And I find I can't speak for you, but for me, in my relationship with God, sometimes when he gives me the things that I want, the good things, I'm like, oh, God, you're a good God. And when he gives me the things that I don't want, I'm like, oh, God, you're a bad God. And we know that's not true. No matter what season we're in, if we're just studying Scripture, okay, I'm not talking about emotional experiences, but if we're just studying Scripture, he is good in both situations. He's good in the storm, and he's good in the celebration. I don't know what season you're in. But when God changes our plans and he gives us gifts that we didn't anticipate or want, the gift that Mary and Joseph were given was the greatest gift they were ever given in their life, but it made their life harder. And sometimes that's what a relationship with God looks like. Let me give you another example. Like, I love the wise men in Scripture. Let's look at just a few verses. I'm not going to read the whole passage. In the next chapter, Matthew chapter 2, even though the, uh, the gospel didn't have chapters originally. It says in verse one, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Magi or wise men as we'll refer to them as were these kind of intellectual seekers from the east who had been doing ancient astronomy and studying the stars. They weren't Christian or even Jewish, but God began to lead them to him. Some of you uh, attending online or in this room right now, you may be an atheist or agnostic person, and you're just seeking out what you believe. You could probably identify a lot with the wise men. It's like uh, the author Lee Strobel that wrote the book Case for Christ a couple decades ago. He was an atheist or agnostic writer for the Chicago Tribune and just started studying the facts of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And through that pursuit, although we never get definite proof from a factual way that you can prove something... He felt the evidence more laid with believing in Jesus and his crucifixion as a resurrection, and he became a Christian through pursuit of the facts. These wise men in this case, by pursuing the facts of what God was doing, and they see the star of Bethlehem in the sky, they leave everything behind. Their plans change Their world's thrown upside down because of pursuing God. They go to this land where they don't know and go to Jerusalem to a king they don't know. And they say, hey, we're trying to find the Messiah, the king. King Herod is afraid. He's afraid the Messiah will overthrow his kingship. So he tells them, let me know when you find that king because I want to worship him too. And he really just wants to kill him. And so these wise men are eventually led to Bethlehem. And when we get there, they, they have a, a dream. And in this vision, they realize that Herod is actually evil and is looking to harm the child. So the, think about this. The wise men go from just pursuing their intellectual, uh, you know, uh, uh, vision for their life, trying to figure out what God is doing and where God is. And they follow that. They begin to encounter God. And then they're in the middle of this, like, uh, you know, governmental espionage thing where they're afraid for their life that this king is going to kill them. Talk about a change of plans. And then, uh, by the way, how many wise men were there? We, we, we actually don't know. That was a trick question, sorry. There, there were three gifts, three gifts for the wise men, but we don't know how many wise men there actually were. We also believe that they most likely didn't go there on the night of the birth. That's why in Christian tradition, we celebrate like the 12 days of Christmas after Christmas season because they came later on. But they go, they present the three gifts of great monetary value, and they worship him. Hit him in the pocketbook. Their lives are now at stake. They're running, running away from a foreign king. All because they were just pursuing God in their life. Talk about a change of plans. Just like Mary and Joseph. They had to trust that God was good. And not just that. If you, if you really think about it, when it came to Herod, they had to trust that Herod was not that he was being influenced by evil. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Let's be clear. It doesn't mean that Christians are good and non-Christians are bad. That's not what it says. It means that God is good and the evil one, Satan, the adversary, the devil in the New Testament, is bad. And he's looking to influence humankind. And that in that instant, the wise men had to trust the goodness of God and admit the evil that was happening in in Herod's life. And I find that in our own individual lives, when we lose hope and we become discouraged and hurt and angry, so often it's hard to hear the voice of God, but there's a whole lot of other voices in our sphere of influence and in our world that are speaking to us. It's not God that's telling us in our ear, nobody cares about you. I don't care about you. I'm not there for you. I'll never be there for you. It's not God that's speaking that the enemy is speaking into our lives in that moment of discouragement and our lack of hope that you just need to realize no one's going to be there for you. You got to be there for yourself. You might as well cheat, steal, kill, and destroy. And who's the one that does that? The New Testament, the Gospel of John, it tells us that the enemy, Satan, the devil, is the one that does that. And if we don't acknowledge the spiritual battle that we're in, we'll miss out on the hope of Christ because we'll be listening to the evil that is in this world and what it wants us to hear. And you can see that happening all the time, especially to our young people, listening to that voice over and over. You'll always be the mistake that you made, you'll always be the one who went through a divorce. You'll always be the one who didn't make it and get the career that you wanted and don't have the finances and your children aren't well behaved and you're always going to have the problems that you created because of the sin in your life. And God, we read in the New Testament says, I created you. I have a purpose and a plan for your life. I am good. Trust in me. I'll provide for you. Number three, remember, you don't have to understand the plan to trust God's purpose. Remember, you don't have to understand the plan to trust God's purpose. Proverbs 19:21 says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. I could tell you about all the good plans I had for my life, but it was only the plans of the Lord that actually prevailed to do things that, I, that actually matter in my life, at least. Trusting his purpose in my life has been part of the growing habits. For 18 months, actually, Lisa and I saved up um, well, we had saved up, and for 18 months, we tried to buy a home in Southern California when we were living there. And the whole time, we made offers on 40-some homes, and I am just getting angry with God. I know it's silly. It's a home. But 18 months of just wasted time trying to find a place to live. And finally, after all of that, God called us to move to Indiana and start a church. I never saw it coming for 18 months, but for 18 months, I'm like, God, what in the world are you doing? I'll tell you, I'm so thankful today for God's plan. This is way better than my plan. Although this morning I might have woken up and worn shorts this morning, so I am sad about that. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's going to snow tomorrow. I need lots of prayer. But I just encourage you today that the hope that Christ has given us is for you in your circumstances and his plans. If you let his purposes prevail, and you trust that God has a purpose, as difficult as that is sometimes. I can't wait to see how God will use it in your life. Matthew 1, 20 to 21. That's what Joseph had to do. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph, in a dream, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Did you hear that? Yeah. He's going to save the people from the sins. I I was just hoping for an obedient son. This son is going to save the people from their sins. The Messiah, the anointed one they had been waiting on, was finally going to be. And by the way, the the word Jesus, it literally means the one who saves. So he's like, I'm going to give you the one who saves, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, Jesus, that the world has been waiting on. And I know it's going to be hard. And I know you're going to have to trust me. And I know you're not getting the 30,000 foot view and you're just going to have to allow me to be the sovereign God that I am. But if you do it, you get to be part of one of the most amazing experiences in human history. And sometimes those simple acts of faithfulness are what are life-changing. I love these quote, this quote by uh, Craig Rochelle: Sometimes God's greatest invitations feel like our worst interruptions. God often interrupts our plans with His purpose. Maybe you've had some interruptions this season. I need to let God interrupt your plans for His purpose. Begin to reclaim His hope, His provision, to say, He's all I need. We're all sitting here today because a few families nine years ago said we're going to let God kind of mess up our lives. We're going to plant the church together. Probably a a couple of you in the room that were a part of that in our house. It's incredible when you let God mess up your plans what he can do. It, It doesn't make it easier. It actually makes it harder. That's what sacrifice looks like. But it's worth it to reclaim that hope in your life And I know some of us today have lost hope, but God has a plan for your life. God is good and you can trust him. Even though you may have given up on him, he has not given up on you and he never will. And I don't know if you're Jonah in the room in the Old Testament that you've been running from God for fear of what he's asking you to do. I don't know if you're Job in the room where everything is just falling apart in your life and you're just like, why God? And you're going to have to make sense of this at the end. Or if you're The Apostle Paul in the room, you've been fighting against God, and yet him in his mercy and grace welcomes you home on the road to Damascus, and he'll change your life and use you. Instead of being an enemy of the Lord, you'll become his greatest asset. But I know this. If you allow the love of Christ and his hope to enter your life this Christmas season, it will bring meaning to you in a way you have never experienced, that when you lack hope, that when you lack purpose, he could provide it for you. The, the new testament says in the verses that we didn't read because we're going to read it at the christmas eve services that we will also call him emmanuel which means god is with us so when we're at our lowest of our lows the holy spirit of god jesus was born into this world so that god could be with us and we could never be alone again that you could have hope in the most dark times that you could be the apostle paul and be in a prison cell possibly knee-deep in raw sewage in the first century, and you could be writing the letter to the Philippians with great joy because to die is gain in Christ. And another breath you've been given in this life is so that God could use you to bring hope to a dark world where the enemy is in people's ears, getting them to give up, say, I don't care, no one cares, give up, cash it all in, Don't No longer have hope that your life could look differently. Jesus entered in the world in a particular moment in human history so you could know God had a sovereign plan. He'd been waiting for 14 generations and then 14 generations and then 14 generations so you wouldn't have to doubt whether he cares about you. And what happens to you in your life? Stop listening to the enemy's whispers in our ears and let us reclaim the sovereignty of God and the hope that he provides for us. Will you pray with me? God, I first pray. For the Christians in the room. Some of us, we have been Christians for decades, and at times we have served you faithfully, but we're tired, or we're burnt out, or we've lost hope, and we feel sick spiritually. God, may we rest in you this Christmas, and may you speak directly to our hearts and our souls. Restore us. Help us to be able to sing with joy to raise a hallelujah to you again because we experience your love and kindness for us in the dark night of our soul. If that's you in the room, just pray this with me. God, restore me. Give me a glimmer of hope again in my life. I surrender it all to you. I want more of you in my life, more of you than anything else. And you alone are going to dictate my choices from now on. And then for those in the room that you've heard about God in the Christmas story, but you have never actually surrendered your life to Jesus and claim the hope that he has given you, if you would like to do that, pray this silently as I pray it out loud. God, I confess that I need you. Forgive me for my wrongdoing. I repent and believe your good news. And on this moment, I surrender your life, my life to you fully, Lord Jesus. Use me. Give me hope in this dark world. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for this time. We pray this in your name and all God's family said, amen.